Uh, and when I train people, um, uh, I usually get them to try this out uh, as a tool. It's called stakeholder or public analysis. Uh, the, and, and just three questions. Uh, who's interested? Uh, what's the benefit? What level of influence might they have? Whether it's facilitating you to achieve impact or blocking you to, to, from impact. Welcome to Helium Podcast, where we help early career researchers land, master, and lead in their faculty positions. That was Mark Reed, Professor of Socio-Technical Innovation and Director of Engagement and Impact at the School of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Development at Newcastle University. He's also the founder of a company called Fast Track Impact and hosts a podcast of the same name, and he's hosted that podcast since 2016. We invited Mark on the show because he's a real expert in getting broader impact out of your research, and he definitely didn't disappoint when talking about how to reach a broader audience and get people engaged and create win-win situations for yourself in terms of propagating your research out into society. You can tell from his title and his many busy things um, that you just mentioned in the intro how much he's got going on, and I... You know, the message that I took away from all of his conversation was really that being productive means you can work less, not more. Um, When I first heard all the things he was up to, I thought, okay, this is somebody who just works around the clock, but he really is about focus. And so the message I took is that at the core, you have to make sure your research is solid, of course, and you don't want to necessarily do things like social media pushes just for the sake of it. But when you do find habits and systems around using social media and other non-traditional academic outlets for getting your research out there, he really kind of shows how you can engage people that maybe you didn't even know were stakeholders. And once you do that, you can get more new ideas, maybe new connections, and really have more significant, truly broader impacts. Yeah, I just was thinking back to that pie chart exercise that he talks about at near to the end of the episode, which is just wonderful in terms of aligning your values with the time that you're spending on a week-to-week basis. So I would listen to this entire episode just for that pie chart exercise near the end of the, the show. So without further ado, we'll get to our episode here with Mark Reed. Today, we're welcoming to the podcast... Mark Reed, a professor of social innovation at Newcastle University. And Mark also hosts his own podcast, Fast Track Impact. Welcome, Mark. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good today. How are you doing over there in the UK? Yeah, it's good. It's it's Friday. The weekend is coming, so uh, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's closer to the weekend for you because it's the afternoon. So uh, we're happy that uh, we got you on the show. Um, and the first thing we wanted to ask you, actually, as fellow podcasters, we're curious. Uh, I think you started your show in 2016. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So um, why did you just start decide to start the Fast Track Impact podcast? And, you know, what kind of impact were you trying to make by it's kind of meta, right? But what kind of impact would you what were you trying to make by starting the Fast Track Impact podcast? Yeah, so uh, it was actually um, a, a training session I went to. Uh, I uh, got my position at Newcastle University, and uh, we had a, a session um, which was uh, all about, well, what do you want to achieve? Uh, and uh, and for me, well, the answer was pretty simple: I want to achieve more impact from my research. Um, uh, but I had a specific question, which was, I want to, in the next few years, to become uh, a thought leader. And 
uh, in so doing, I, I want to be able to mentor people at scale. So, um, so it was about uh, big ideas, but but actually to kind of going going at scale and going quite deep with that. Um, and I realised that a podcast actually could be the way to to get those ideas out there in a way that could uh, could actually feel like I was mentoring people because you get this quite close relationship with the people that that you listen to on podcasts. Uh, and um, I've got a, a fairly uh, small listenership. I, we get uh, about 500, um, 500 listeners a week. Um, but uh, but for me, uh, although the numbers on that are fairly small, the impact of it is is massive. Uh, the level of engagement I get from uh, from my podcast and the number of people who then uh, ask me to come and talk uh, at their universities or do trainings uh, or give me other uh, opportunities uh, because of that. Um, uh, and especially when I am out and about, uh, the the kind of welcomes and reactions I get from people who know me from the the podcast, uh, it, it is really quite remarkable. So, uh, fairly limited numbers, but big impact, uh, which is why I, I still invest in this heavily and and really enjoy it. You know that I already feel kind of a kindred, you know, way of thinking about it because yeah, five hundred sounds small if you're looking at the Apple podcast downloads but if you compare it to having one grad student in your office it's a lot more you know and just mentoring at scale and not being afraid to go very specific because the truth is this is supposed to be helping a a pretty specific slice of people who have problems that are not unique but maybe they don't have somebody right next to them that can relate or has just the piece of advice that's going to help them through their next day or next year so um that's really interesting yeah absolutely and i do try and go beyond the just research impact Uh, i mean that's the key theme running through it but i do quite a lot of stuff on um uh, work-life balance and mental health and and things like that as well on the podcast because uh, yeah the idea is that uh, it's like having a, a weekly mentoring session not quite as adaptive and uh, two ways as that would be in uh, in real life but um but yeah it's the, the idea is that i can go deeper with this uh, with this mode than i can through a blog or uh, through a magazine or any of the other kind of ways in which i communicate with people say on social media yeah that that makes a lot of sense and um you know, I think all those other things that you maybe touch on are are really a part of enabling maximum research impact, you know. Um, so I guess that kind of leads into a question of what, what is the research or activity that you've undertaken, in your opinion, that has had the most impact? And are there lessons from this that other early career researchers can take away? Hmm. So I think um, I would start with my environmental research. Um, uh, did some research on uh, on peat bogs uh, quite early on in my career, uh, so right at the end of my PhD. Uh, so I was still a PhD student when I started that research. And um, uh, the, the goal at the time was, well, I, I want to use the skills I've got to do some good in the world. Um, uh, here is uh, a habitat and uh, a bunch of quite uh, remote, rural, impoverished communities. Um, maybe I could do something to, to help uh, to help these guys. Uh, and um, it's been a long journey. So um, I guess yeah, we're looking fifteen uh, at least years uh, since I started uh, the, the research on that. 
And uh, and we're now at a level where uh, we uh, are working closely with the UK government. Um, We've developed uh, a new policy mechanism um, with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is a a UK policy mechanism that gets uh, private investment in peat bogs. Uh, so uh, you can, in theory, get uh, more money in your pocket as a land manager uh, to deliver benefits for society and uh, and the businesses get some benefits from, from that as well. Uh, and uh, we're now working with the United Nations on, uh, on these blended finance mechanisms to try and get um, more private investment um, in nature conservation uh, internationally. Uh, so next week, I'll be hosting a bunch of people from the, the UN and flying uh, in from, from Europe to, uh, to, to try and uh, take that to the next level. Um, so uh, the work that we've done um, uh, is having impacts from the, the scale of uh, a farmer uh, to the UK national scale to, to an international scale um, in terms of work on, on peat bogs and, uh, and blended finance for, for conservation. But for me, the, the, the limitation of that is, well, it's well, one habitat. Um, uh, okay, so I've now worked across lots of habitats. I do work in deserts. I've got a dairy project at the moment. But it's still just environment. And the, the scale and number of challenges uh, out there in the world and the, the amount of knowledge that there is uh, in the academy, the number of skilled people that there are that could uh, actually make those issues better, uh, led me to uh, increasingly... Uh, study what worked uh, in my own practice to generalize lessons from that and then to then communicate those lessons uh, first of all through my book the research impact handbook and then taking that out on the road through training uh, free training from my website um, and then paid training in universities to try and enable others to generate and share knowledge in new ways so they can change the world and actually for me by, by far and away the, the biggest impact I have now is through uh, my podcast my website uh, all of the stuff I do online and the trainings that I do that empower and equip others to make a difference in whatever their sphere of influence may be. You know what I love about that is um, just it kind of highlights the, I guess, potential when you try to think at multiple scales at one time. So this reminds me, um, there's a scholar, Dan Stokels, um, who really kind of pioneered the field of social ecology. And it's really fascinating. Um, And he talks about this type of thinking at multiple scales for the same, you know, maybe thread of a problem but how what you're doing can then be leveraged and and have ripple effects and being intentional about that it sounds like your handbook kind of helps people do that so that you know it on one hand a lot of people would think what you're thinking um oh it's just peat bogs even though that's a huge impact and then feel like their hands are tied but it sounds like what you're saying is there are some really practical ways that you can exploit and and kind of really maximize the benefit of your effort that you've put in on one scale and, and see a pathway to actually, you know, follow through and hand off a baton where necessary to, to see impacts at multiple scales. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for me, the first step that I recommend to anyone who's, who's thinking, well, what, what, what difference could I make? Um, it's just me. It's just this one narrow area of, of, of work that, that I'm doing. And, and for me, uh, the first question to ask yourself is, is who out there beyond uh, the academy uh, might have an interest in, in some aspect of my research? Maybe it's just my, my theory, my method. Uh, maybe it's one tiny uh, bit 
Uh, and for me, that's the first question that then starts you on that that, that pathway to impact. Uh, and where, when I train people, um, uh, I usually get them to try this out uh, as a tool. It's called stakeholder or public analysis. Uh, the, and, and just three questions. Uh, who's interested? Uh, what's the benefit? What level of influence might they have? Whether it's facilitating you to achieve impact or blocking you to, for, from impact. Um, uh, and very often I get people who have been working with certain publics or organizations for years and they go through this tool and start thinking about this systematically and they realize that, huh, I've been working with these guys in one really narrow way and I could be working with this organization in a whole lot of other ways. And actually, uh, I just zoom out from this a moment and what about this other sector and what about this other spatial scale or governance scale? Uh, and all of a sudden, you take your blinkers off and you realize that there are some really big opportunities just waiting for you. And when you go through this, you very often find that there are organizations or groups out there who are just waiting for your research. They love what you do. Uh, and as soon as you open that conversation with them, then actually your impact is their impact. And they're now willing to throw staff time, resources, money um, at you to help you achieve what you want to do. But uh, ask that question. Uh, ask it as early as you can. And uh, and very often the opportunities uh, are just sitting there waiting for you. You just weren't looking before. That's that's great advice, and I think that I wanted to follow up on this because you talk a little bit about the use of social media, right? So not everyone out there is going to start their own podcast, although I guess they could. <laughs> but in terms of making, in, in terms of finding those organizations and those people that care about these particular issues and sort of broadening your perspective. What has been your experience in using social media? Um, how have you, uh, you know, strategically applied your approach to social media to try to to connect with more stakeholders out there in the, in the world that want to know about uh, the research that you're doing? So the first thing that I do with social media is actually to back up from social media and ask myself the question, um, uh, who is interested in my research uh, and what kind of benefit do I want people like that to get from, from my research? Uh, if you start with the question, um, how can I make a difference through social media, uh, then uh, I, I may well end up with one very narrow group who may be the usual suspects, who may not be the hard-to-reach groups who most need my research, who may not be the, that one organization who could take this to scale. So I ask myself, uh, what is the benefit I want to see from my research with whom? Uh, and then from that, I'm asking myself, what might be the most relevant activities that could most time efficiently for me and effectively for them uh, enable them to engage with my research and to to get those benefits? Uh, and if the answer is that social media is the best way to do that, then and only then do I uh, develop myself uh, a social media strategy. Uh, for me, this doesn't have to be anything written down. Uh, it's just that I'm taking a strategic approach to social media because it can be a massive suck for time. So uh, I'm asking myself what it is uh, that I'm trying to achieve. I'm using it for a purpose. Um, uh, I'm uh, getting to know the, the people who are out there on social media, what they're interested in, um, so that I am able to craft messages that are going to resonate with them and actually meet their needs and deliver benefits that would mean something to them. And uh, and then uh, I'm putting messages out there that I've designed specifically to encourage engagement. So uh, I'm trying to 
to to make this something that uh, that people will sit up and take notice of. So it's something that, that is directly irrelevant to them, some interesting fact, um, an image with it as well that makes this now quite shareable, ideally. Um, and then ultimately, uh, when they click on that and they go through, they get a reward that, well, that's, that's actually better than I was even expecting. Uh, as, like, as an academic, um, I think one of the things that a lot of people are looking for is they want up-to-date, reliable, robust um, balanced information. So I think at minimum, uh, we need to make sure that they get that reward and you're not just spouting uh, rhetoric. Uh, but uh, but then, well, actually, when you click through, it turns out there was an infographic with that. And uh, that was really a lot easier to understand than I expected. And there's an open access paper linked to that and a blog. And it's part of a website with all this other cool stuff on it. And now I'm, I'm sharing this with my friends. I'm emailing to people um, great. And then finally, I'm trying to make sure that I then convert that into offline impact. So great, I've got someone on my website, but was that what I wanted? That's not really a benefit. What I want now is to know that that person uh, understands something they didn't before. Uh, there's a change in, in awareness or perception, perhaps. And then they can do something useful with that that will benefit them. And I'm asking myself what those steps are and how I can empower and enable them to take those next steps. Very often encouraging them to now come onto an email list and discuss with me via email, uh, come to a, a meeting, to a, web, a webinar or something that, that means this becomes more more relational. And from there, we then have real impacts, not just YouTube video likes and and watches and, and whatever else. It's, it's actual real impact that means something. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds to me like you need to um, you need to make a plan that's like, you know, the marketers for the first ones to jump on social media, right? And they are thinking about it more like, gathering customers and getting them to go through this sequence of actions. and But it seems that science, right, and, and researchers and engineers and all, all the folks that listen to our, our show are, are kind of catching up with that, right, and saying, okay, these aren't customers per se, but they're stakeholders. And you can use some of the same processes to get people engaged get but you have to think the whole thing through and not just uh spend a bunch of time on social media and expect something to happen you've got to think about the process by which these people are going to come into your orbit and then because as we've talked about with one of our former guests there's this um there's this principle that someone needs kind of about 10 touch points with you, whether or not that's on social media or, or listening to your podcast or whatever, before they quote unquote want to work with you, right? And in this case, th that could be with activists or people that are really caring about a particular issue, but they need to feel like they have a personal relationship with you before they're, they're reaching out and starting that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think what you're saying is quite uncomfortable for a lot of academics um, because, well, I, I don't want to market myself. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you see, uh, it's clickbait. It's it's fairly crass. Um, so, um, so, so for me, uh, you have to kind of take some of this with a pinch of salt and, uh, and not going to go full out there. Um, but, uh, but, but I do think there are lessons that, that we can learn. And for me, just intellectually making the leap to say, well, um, actually, yeah, marketers use this, but uh, I work part time for, for a conservation charity. Uh, and in, thir in the third sector as well, they're using these techniques as well to, to drive social good. And actually, uh, the reason I'm doing my research and I want to have impact is for social good. So, so actually, if I'm going to use that taxpayer money responsibly, and if I am actually going to drive impact from my research, then I need to get it out there. 
Uh, so this is now I'm marketing my projects and my research rather than marketing myself per se. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think there are uh, some some really powerful tricks that that, that you can use. So uh, in social media land, um, influence equals numbers. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, so uh, if you want to become influential, uh, then you need to to play the numbers game. Uh, for me, this is this is not for the faint-hearted. I think you, you need to have a good reason for uh, becoming influential. So, um, for me, uh, there are certain accounts I need to have influential that need to be influential because they are a major pathway to impact for me. So, for fast track impact, um, it's important that I've got a major social media uh, presence. Um, and Twitter is important because I know a lot of academics are are on Twitter, and uh, and for fast track impact, I will promote what I do. Um, and for certain other um, projects that I have, I will use it in that kind of promotional way. So one example is a follow-unfollow strategy on Twitter, which is a fairly well-kept secret for most academics. It plays um, close to the wind of, uh, of Twitter's rules of engagement. But effectively, the way that it works is uh, they allow you to, to use this technique if you um, provide value uh, to the network. There's nothing for free in social media land either. Um, so, uh, so you get shut down if uh, if nobody uh, actually follows you or engages you. They they think that you are actually a spammer. Uh, but for academics, it works because you are genuine and and people do engage with you and they get value from this. So uh, you're basically going and identifying other accounts um, that are growing and that are popular that are doing similar things to you, and you follow on a regular basis the people who follow those accounts, making sure you've got relevant stuff to the top of your timeline. And uh, and as they follow and like and retweet, uh, then your your presence mushrooms. Other people see it, and if they like what they see, they follow, and and so on and so forth. Um, I've written more about this on my blog, and you know, just Google follow on follow strategy, and you'll see uh, what other people are doing. This is various tools that help you to do this. But uh, if that feels too hard work, so so when I say hard work, um, uh, I I went from about two thousand followers to twenty thousand followers in a year. Um, using this on 20 minutes a day. I've got a PhD student who did this. Um, she wants to start her own business when she finishes her PhD. And she went from about 50 followers to 10,000 in a year uh, using this technique. Um, so, so great. If you've got a reason, then do it. And, uh, and it's, you're looking at 20 minutes uh, a day to, to do all of your social media stuff, uh, putting messages out, checking stuff and using this technique. Uh, but for most people, I would actually go against the grain with social media advice and say, you know what, quality is more important than quantity. And rather than tweeting about my breakfast and uh, and putting out rubbish stuff, I'd rather do like one tweet per month or even one tweet a year that is actually really good and then reach out to an influencer and get them to put it in front of lots of people. If you're out there in our audience and you're looking for a faculty position, but you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed by the whole process, we've actually taken some of the best lessons from this podcast and from our own personal experience and put it into a six-week email course where you get one email a week for six weeks with some tasks that you can do to set yourself up to have success in your search for a faculty position. This course can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash FPP course. Again, if you're searching for a faculty position, we have a free course for you. That is at teamhelium.co slash FPP C-O-U-R-S-E. Thanks. And back to the show.
I am very fascinated by this idea. And I think it's super important and timely that we kind of reckon with the fact that information dissemination is radically different than it was even 10 years ago. And what is truthful, what is real knowledge? I mean, I think we are sort of the choir, these three in this conversation, talking to each other about how critical it is to take advantage of this and kind of democratize information and really just disseminate it. So there's educational equity and it isn't just people with the license to read all the academic papers, but anyone can take advantage of all the knowledge that we are are gathering here in academia. So I guess my question is, um, you sparked this when you said about using the uh, the Twitter techniques of for academics, it works because you are genuine. And so knowing that the three of us are on board, and I think a lot of people are seeing this who maybe are early career researchers, and also knowing that the reality is that we're coming into academic institutions that have sometimes a very skeptical or even antagonistic viewpoint to the, quote, diluted, not diluted, but dilute. <laughs> um, maybe both. I don't know what they think, but uh, basically there could be some skepticism in the upper ranks of people who want to, um, for good reasons, protect the sort of sanctity and you know rigor of academic truth. And they see this kind of wild and free world of social media as a threat to people's trust in what it is. So do you have advice for people who are young in their research career and who cares about numbers in their age, but, um, but who get, who get this, who have drunk the Kool-Aid, um, but who need to, in order to advance and, and be able to make an impact in their career, who need to be able to convince the others in their path, you know, their leadership, or at least not be, dinged by those people for engaging in this type of of outreach yeah so i'll go beyond social media with this um and i'm going to say something that may not be popular um and may even sound contradictory but uh, but for me uh, actually the starting point has to be your research and your publications and uh, and for me this is research impact not just impact for impact's sake so this is about Going through the uh, the rigor of your discipline, um, the peer review system, etc., um, and I think as an early career researcher, the uh, allure of uh, of impact um, uh, can be very strong. Um, but in terms of my priorities uh, to get on in my career, I, I need to to really make sure that I am focusing on getting those publications out and and doing the doing the research, getting the rigor that I need. Um, uh, and putting pause on some of the grand ambitions that I have for for where this goes until I've got that behind me, because uh, ultimately our, our reputation is everything. And uh, social media of all places, uh, when I put something out there that turns out um, uh, to be wrong, uh, ultimately um, I, I did it in good faith, uh, but uh, I didn't follow those checks and balances. And now. Uh, well, hey, maybe my career is, is in tatters, uh, and we've all heard stories of people who've lost their jobs uh, over over a misjudged tweet. So, uh, so I'm very risk averse in social media land. I, I, I like to make sure that what I'm saying has uh, has got a basis, um, and this is research impact. Uh, and uh, and then beyond social media. Uh, your question is, well, uh, how do I convince uh, my PhD supervisor, uh, my, my postdoc supervisor, whoever, uh, that this is a, a good use of my time? Well, 
uh, I think if you've ticked that box and you've uh, you've got some research, fair enough. If I'm um, procrastinating and uh, and not actually getting the research done, then they might have a point. Uh, but as long as I've ticked that box, uh, then uh, for me, I'm looking at this in two ways. I'm looking at it in terms of win-wins, and I'm looking at it in terms of um, uh, actually how I can do this very time efficiently. When I decided to try and get uh, my research on research impact uh, out to the world, I uh, created a, a company as a vehicle for that, which I called Fast Track Impact. And I called it that because I believe that it is possible to do proper impact that is, uh, that's, that's authentic, it's, uh, it's, it's lasting, it's meaningful, uh, time efficiently. And it's all about thinking strategically. Uh, and so uh, on my website, there's loads of, loads of different templates and tools and, and things that uh, enable you to do impact um, very time efficiently. But uh, with everything that I do, there is this, this beating heart. And so, uh, yeah, it takes some shortcuts, um, but you are, are always and constantly brought back to the fact that uh, the heart of the, of the impact agenda is the concept of empathy. Uh, this is about putting myself in their shoes, imaginatively uh, wondering what it might feel like to be in that situation uh, so that we're doing research not for or to people, but with people. Um, and if we understand that, then great. Uh, now let's find some ways of taking a few shortcuts and squeezing some stuff into the gaps and doing what I can with the time that I have available. Uh, and so my first message to, to my seniors is, is um, uh, I can do some of this stuff. Uh, and actually, I don't need to take a week off work to do this. I don't need to work extra weekends or evenings. Uh, I can squeeze this into the gaps and still do something pretty impressive, actually. In which case, maybe I don't even need to actually ask permission for this stuff because uh, it's not going to be taking the place of anything else or compromising anything else. Uh, but the second thing then is the is the win-wins. And um and very often uh, when we engage uh, with impact impressively, uh, actually there are uh, benefits back to the research. Now I'm getting new opportunities for research funding. I'm getting industry funding alongside my research project that gives me additional staff, gives me access to additional data. Uh, and very often um, uh, what I what I experience um, and I see uh, people getting from this is that there are these positive feedbacks to the research. And if nothing else, um, for many of us, there's a massive positive feedback to our motivation that I'm remembering why I came into this. And actually, yeah, this is what I thought being a researcher was going to be about. And I can see now um, that, that, yeah, uh, I'm changing how people think. I'm making the world a better place and, uh, and I feel better about myself, my research, what I'm doing, and I love my job again. So I'm going to attempt to transition here because we wanted to talk to you about another subject and the way I'm going to do it is social media we've talked about, right? And we've talked about it with some of our, our, our former guests and the bad mental effects that social media can have because what people do is they filter out all the bad stuff. They don't put the good stuff oftentimes on social media. And you can get the impression that even as a researcher, right, all the other researchers you're following are just killing it, right? They're not, they're not going to, to use some jargon, I guess, or to use some American phrasing. Uh, they're publishing great papers. They're getting accepted. Some people are, are pretty open and honest on social media, but that's not everybody, right? And so what I'm trying to get to here is that on your 
show, you talk a lot about mental health and you've talked a lot about mental health recently. And so we wanted to talk to you a little bit because you've been so open and honest about uh, mental health struggles, uh, about what advice you would have for early career researchers who want to model good mental health practices for their students and, and, the, and the folks that they're mentoring. Yeah, I'm good. So if I just briefly cover mental health or protecting your mental health on social media and then and I think a bit more broadly on this, um, I, I think I do social media training on a regular basis. I've talked to a lot of researchers about this and uh, and there are some obvious risk factors. Um, on Twitter, if you're female in particular, the statistics suggest uh, that you're much more uh, likely to come in for abuse. Uh, if you are uh, obviously from some kind of ethnic minority, perhaps. Um, but what I find with research is that, is that just as big a risk factor is how controversial your research is. Uh, and it's surprising, I do research on climate change, uh, and uh, and that's remarkably controversial. So, um, uh, but there's plenty more controversial issues than that. And if uh, if that's you, then uh, I can be a white middle aged man, and I can still be uh, in for it. Uh, one of the, the the things that uh, that I see a lot of academics do is uh, <coughs> to to protect themselves uh, by creating um, semi-anonymous accounts. So I think uh, as an academic, you don't want to have a, an entirely uh, anonymous uh, avatar here because you uh, want to be credible uh, and you want to drive impact and you need some control over that and you need to, to be able to connect with your, your audiences. Uh, but what a lot of people do is they will have um, uh, an account uh, which is for their research project uh, or the latest research and evidence on X or Y. And uh, and then you can have uh, tweets are by, uh, and then you've got your personal Twitter handle, and uh, and you can make sure your Twitter handle doesn't reveal your uh, your gender or uh, ethnic background if you think that's a, a risk factor. Uh, and it can go if you want to uh, a locked down um, private account with an image which also doesn't reveal that. And uh, what I find is that yeah, the abuse may still come in if you're working on a controversial topic, uh, but it isn't personal now. And it's a lot easier to deal with that compared to the, the more personal stuff that, that often comes uh, your way. Um, but, but ultimately, with social media, you have to ask yourself, how thick-skinned am I? And, uh, uh, and how important is social media as a, as a, a pathway to impact for me? Uh, and if I'm thin-skinned and it's not that important, then why put myself out there? Uh, so I think uh, stand up to peer pressure uh, on this. Just because everyone else is on social media doesn't mean I have to, to be on it as well. Uh, and as an academic, there are some very good reasons not to in order to protect your, your time uh, and your reputation and, uh, and your mental health. So, so great. Let's empower ourselves to, to do what is right for us. Uh, in terms of the, the broader uh, issue, firstly, one of the reasons I talk about this uh, on my podcast, uh, and I've written about it in my most recent book, The Productive Researcher, uh, is that I think that the more we normalize talking about this, uh, the more likely we are to realize that, yeah, uh, it, it isn't just me. Um, uh, and uh, the statistics are quite scary. Um, but who are these people? I, I don't know who they are. And uh, and just that sense of knowing that there are other people out there who suffer and um, are challenged by similar kinds of things um, can be enormously useful. And I think as, a, as a, an academy, we, we can become more resilient um, by being more open about this and talking and, and therefore being able to help each other. Uh, I no longer feel quite so, so isolated. Uh, for, for me, though, the, the, the number one cause of this stuff uh, is, uh, is issues around uh, workload and, and stress. Uh, these 
uh, that there are huge expectations and some really unhealthy norms that are created, um, especially by uh, some of the more senior academics who regularly work weekends and evenings uh, every week, every weekend. Um, <clears throat> and a sense as an early career researcher that, well, that's kind of what I have to do. Um, and I think that uh, that changing some of those norms um, uh, is is for me enormously important. Um, uh, and standing up and and saying, actually, no, I'm not going to look at my email and answer things uh, over the weekend if I don't want to, and I shouldn't feel pressured into that. And so. Uh, in my book, Theory of the Productive Researcher, it's a bit of a misnomer uh, in that, uh, yeah, it's about becoming more productive. Um, it's not about time management tools. It's about a, a way of thinking, a, a way of prioritizing. But I become more productive so that I can actually work less and I get my work-life balance. Um, and so it's a book about um, being more rather than just being more productive. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I, although I have um, uh, the, the highest workload of anyone in my, my research group, um, I, I work very part-time for a conservation charity. I run my own business. Uh, I never work weekends. And on average, I work 37 hours a week. And uh, uh, and for me, that, uh, that's the most important thing. So a whole lot of other things I do to try and build resilience into my working week. Um, but for me, just not working too much and getting um, enough rest uh, is is an enormous starting point. So I could definitely pick your brain for hours about how you do that. Um, because I also am fractured in a number of different directions. And, I, and I'm really hear what you say, that there are diminishing returns on just thinking you can throw more work at it. You get less out of it. You, it's unhealthy. It's not sustainable. And really you're modeling when you do this kind of workaholic deep dive into the rabbit hole, you're modeling that this isn't a thing that people who are smart should do. So it's like the opposite of every effect you want to have, but it does seem impossible to avoid sometimes. So you mentioned your 2017 book, Productive Researcher. Um, are there specific lessons from that book that you would recommend um, right away to someone just starting out to not start bad habits um, so they don't get too far off track and and so they know what are you know the right boundaries to hold even while you're in a job that you chose specifically because it's pushing the limits of your abilities and doing things that haven't been done before <laughs> yeah great uh, so first of all, um, uh, I had the, have the privilege because I self-published this. Um, I get to also give it away for free. So uh, if you want to uh, to read uh, all of the core parts of that book uh, for free, uh, then uh, I've excerpted it in uh, the the most recent issue of my magazine. So issue two of my magazine on my website, um, and you can read excerpts from uh, the whole of part one of uh, of the book. Uh, but I'll give you in a nutshell, in fact, I can give you in a single word, um, uh, for, for me, a, a one-word summary of that book uh, is simply the word priorities, because the word priorities has fused with it implicitly this idea of your values. Uh, your priorities are not just your most urgent and important to-do list item. Your priorities are the things that you care most deeply about. Uh, and so one of the exercises that, that I get people to do in the book and in the training that goes with this uh, is to to draw a, a pie chart, um, uh, and I get them to to, to think about uh, in this pie chart the different parts of your identity. So, what makes me me? Um, so, I'm uh, I'm a father, I'm a researcher, I'm a teacher, I'm creative, whatever it is. 
Um, uh, and the segments uh, are proportional to how important you think those parts of your identity are. I then get you to think through um, the, the values that underpin those things. So some of those may be values um, uh, and otherwise, well, what are the values that underpin the, the fact that I'm a researcher? Well, it's about integrity and honesty. The fact that I'm a father, well, I'm caring, I'm patient. Um, uh, I had someone that I was mentoring recently who said, well, actually, you know what? There's a big part of my identity, which is I'm an angry man. Um, and when I talked about the values behind that, um, he said, well, actually, uh, the values sitting behind this are, 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 are the fact that, that there is all this injustice that has happened to me and that has happened to the world. And actually, this, this sense of righting wrongs is a huge thing that drives uh, my research as well. Uh, and I would argue then that um, it is uh, at this uh, intersection between our identity and our values that our deepest priorities emerge. Uh, and so my second exercise is to then redraw that uh, pie, pie chart, but this time make the, the segments proportional to the amount of time you spend. Um, uh, and when you do that, uh, what often happens is you discover that some of the things that uh, are most important to you and connected to your values are things that you actually get very little time to spend on. And that is often the, the biggest source of dissonance. Um, that uh, main, And that's why you feel like you don't have work-life balance. So uh, and you feel dissatisfied. Uh, and so that's where you start work to try and start rebalancing things. And it can just be 10 minutes a day, half an hour per week uh, on that one priority that takes me back to being who I ultimately am and want to be. And, uh, and instantly you get this massive feedback to your motivation. Uh, and so at the heart of this approach is that if you understand what your priorities are and you have them razor sharp in front of you at all times uh, and you spend even small amounts of time regularly on your deepest priorities, then you get more and more motivated and more and more focused and you start to achieve more. And so so for me, understanding my priorities is is the, the, the key thing that I have to get. And now I'm saying yes to my priorities and uh, I'm able to much more easily say no to those things that everyone wants me to do, but I don't have to do, uh, that I feel peer pressure to do, that uh, actually my ego is telling me I should do. And that ultimately I then end up regretting because it, it takes me even further away from those important priorities or requires me to work even longer hours. So yeah, in a nutshell, it's about priorities and it's about creating a positive feedback loop between your priorities and your motivation. I think that is a perfect way to end this podcast because that's just very inspirational and it's very practical for people that are just starting out. It's just thinking about how they can align what why they're doing this job in the first place with the with the time that they need to spend on it. I actually I was listening to you say that and I hadn't read that uh, part of your your book and I'm like I need to do this. So <laughs> I think it's a perfect I think it's a perfect way because I think everyone who's listening is going to be like how can I turn this off and and uh, start doing the pie chart exercise and we will definitely link to all of those resources that you've talked about. We'll we'll hunt them down on your website, your magazine. I think you said the magazine issue too. Yep. Uh, and some of the strategies you talked about. We'll we'll link to that from the show notes so that they can find that uh, quite easily easily. Uh, thank you, Mark, for joining us today. We want to be respectful of your time. And thanks so much for coming on and joining uh, Helium Podcast. Fantastic. Really great to spend time with you both. Yeah, same.
on the soccer field, he was talking to his buddy and his buddy said, my dad's a doctor, um, which is an easy thing to say, right? Like what your dad is, you, you could picture it, right? Um, and, and they're just making chat conversation. And my son said, oh, my mom's an emailer. And I said, oh my gosh, he is correct. That is not, my pie chart does not align with what I want to be doing. And so I think that your practical advice about just how, just, you know, we have these careers in research where you have an almost, you know, a, a staggering amount of freedom that can trap you in into not knowing if you're using it the right way. And so just that message that you have about follow your compass, what did you get into this to do? And what is your life going to look like? Because this type of a life is like a liquid. It will fill up the whole volume of whatever you let it do. So just be very intentional about it. Um, I know I'm going to download your book right away. And um, anyway, that was a long way to say also. <laughs> there is a, I have an entire chapter on email because for me, this is the number one thing that actually takes people away from ultimately what they want to do. And you spend your entire life answering emails and chasing everyone else's dreams and never getting time on yours. This is not about becoming really selfish and saying, right, I'm going to put everyone else aside now and just focus on my stuff. But it's surprising the number of people who can't make 10 minutes a day or half an hour a week. And that's not asking a lot for yourself, for your dreams. Um, and if email is a thing that is stopping that, then ask yourself, why does email have such psychological power over me? Why can't I get to the end of the day without checking it? Why do I have this growing sense of impending doom the longer I leave it, that there's some terrible thing sitting in there? Uh, and I think if you can overcome uh, the, the psychological tyranny that email uh, exerts over you, uh, that, that can give huge freedom. That's perfect. I think you just named our episode the psychological tyranny of email. <laughs> yeah, we could probably talk about that for a whole episode, actually. Yeah, this is... Uh, there you go. Well, maybe there's a follow-up in there. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we'll have you back on. We can talk about uh, the ter- tyranny of email. This is excellent. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you through this. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode 26 of Helium Podcast. We really appreciate you as a listener, and we'd love to hear from you on Twitter, at Helium Podcast, if you have any ideas for the show or comments on the show. Again, go to at Helium Podcast and make a comment for us on Twitter. As always, the show notes can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash podcast. Specifically for this episode, it would be slash episode 26. The music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake at mblakemusic.com. And as always, this episode was edited by Zach Hendren and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Until next time, Team Helium, we wish you great success in landing, mastering, and leading in your faculty positions.